Carbon farming, a farmer's perspective on the journey towards net zero. The inaugural lecture of Professor John Gilliland of Queen's University Belfast in association with the Irish Farmers Journal. Pro Vice-Chancellor, Lord Deben, Director, ladies and gentlemen, both here in the Great Hall and online. Um, can I say how humbled I'm actually of being here? And one in an organisation that only last week got UK recognition for coming first equal in agriculture, veterinary and food. If you're going to get such an honorary award, get it from a good institute. Congratulations to the institute. I think it's a stunning piece of work, benchmarked equal with the University of East Anglia, beating Liverpool, Cambridge and everybody else below that. So very well done. I want to personally, before I start on this, extend my gratitude to the Institute, to Queen's University, for actually recognising a practitioner. I have to say, I was also humbled when the editor of the Farmers Journal wrote the next week. I don't think there is probably a more apt title for a person called Gilliland than Professor of Practice. This idea of reaching out to practitioners and recognising that practitioners actually do have a role in helping you know, shape the journey that we have to go forward on. When I uh, was asked to uh, give my inaugural address and create a title, I make no bones about it. My passion, first and foremost, is I'm a farmer. I've been very privileged in my career to actually do a lot of other jobs off the farm. But I'm a practicing farmer, and today is about how I see we as farming could take this forward, rather than everyone telling us what to do. The best way to get farmers to go in this is to empower them, empower them with good knowledge and good science. So I hope today what I achieve is at least um, some uh, 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 light on the possible journey that we're going on, and also suggest ways that we could come and be more cohesive how we do it. I don't believe the journey ahead of us is a journey we should walk away from. Neither should we be scared of. But there is no better place than in an institute like this who puts science at its core that I should give my inaugural lecture. In setting out on this journey and scratching my head, what does net zero mean? It's used now, there's hardly uh, you know, a person who doesn't include it in their journey. Well, I'm going to give you my definition of what net zero is, and I'm going to do it in three steps. Net zero for me is in my farm business, is I work out what do I emit in carbon dioxide, in methane, and in nitrous oxide. Where does it come from? How do we measure it? How do we get a handle on it? Currently, that is what our farms right across you know, Ireland, UK, into Europe, and a wider field are currently reported against. But I also know I have a farm and a landscape that's full of plants that photosynthesize, that lock up carbon, 
and release oxygen. Now, I also know that our animals come along and graze some of that and re-release it. But not all of it if I do my job right. And I'm really passionate that it isn't just about reducing my emissions, it's also about actually increasing my carbon stocks. And I'm delighted to see both the IPCC and the UK Committee on Climate Change have said to achieve net zero by 2050, we need agriculture not only to reduce its emissions but to increase its carbon stocks. So it's still of considerable concern to me that carbon sequestration is not recognised in the National Infantry, neither is it recognised in Scope 3 emissions for dairy processing companies and whatever. And we need the regulatory and policy framework to go with us on this journey. So for me, net farm carbon on my farm is where the sum of my emissions are equal to the sum of my segregation. That's what I can do. I can't talk to the nation, but I can. I'm in control of my own business, and that is what I'm trying to do. Tonight, I'm going to see, pose, is it achievable? How do we get there? So my first experience on renewables and, and in carbon farming goes right back to 1998. I graduated in 1987 from Edinburgh, and I inherited a stunning place on the banks of the Foyle immediately outside the city of Derry. But you know, adversity breeds innovation. When you inherit a beautiful place like this, and in the rainfall that it always gets in the northwest, it's always wet, finding a way to heat it actually is key to the built environment. What I didn't realize was how good it was going to be. So the following year, I then built a grain dryer around it. And actually, some of that work led to be, being awarded the 1992 Tillage Farm of the Year by the Farmer's Journal. So it's great to go full circle. Very simply, we spent 20,000. We had an annual saving of 6,000 and a payback of 3.6 years in 1988. There was no mention of the word of carbon, none whatsoever. And there was certainly no mention of RHI. When I finished my term in office in the Ulster Farmers Union, I was very fortunate that I was approached by government to actually become a policy advocate. I carry out many roles, but one that I'm most proud of is for seven years I chaired DEFRA's Rural Climate Change Forum. I reported directly to the Secretary of State. It was a multi-stakeholder group. So I had the NFAU and the Country Landowners Association. I also had the RSPB, the National Trust. And our remit was to actually look at what is the state of our knowledge out there? What are the knowledge gaps? How do we fill them? How do we get industry engagement on this journey? What recommendations would we make to government? And we were created just as the new UK Committee on Climate Change was created. Was there a way that we could support them around agriculture and land use? Back then, even in 2006, 2007, we were talking about how could we bring the sector in. We commissioned a report, Emissions Trading for Agriculture in the Land Use Sector, carried out by NERA, their 2007 report. At that stage, the conclusions were 
that the characteristics of the sector make emissions trading difficult. There are a lot of small businesses, costly to administer. Emissions vary depending on where you put the boundaries. But perhaps project-based schemes like anaerobic digestion, like forestry and energy crops could be looked at. And that was in 2007. In 2008, we had the pleasure of supporting the UK's Committee on Climate Change to create the UK's first marginal abatement cost curve, otherwise known as MAC. You don't need to look at the detail, but what I do want to flag up, for me, it was an eye-opener that actually changing behaviour in many cases could make you money and not be a cost centre. And so what you can see on the, uh, the left-hand side of this bar chart, there are things called win-wins. Those are where we can take actions as farmers that actually drive profitability. But on the right-hand side, there are quite clearly actions that we could do that are very expensive. But the key on this, the thing I learned from that process, is the need to prioritize your actions. And you start with the cheapest ones, and you work out from that. And that is key, and why subsequently, you know, Chagas has done extraordinary work in the Republic of Ireland on building comprehensive MAC curves and updating it. And I'm also delighted to see that Professor Gary Lanigan's here, because nobody knows more about MAC curves on this island than Gary. Uh, so I'm privileged, Gary, that you're here. Before I move on, there were successes from the rural climate change. The first one is we got consensus. It is not always very common that the industry and environmental interests actually agree, but we got consensus. We also set some good foundations. For example, life cycle assessment calculators to work out your carbon emissions. We actually got the British Standards Institute to create a a, 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 a standard for carbon calculators. So if you want to make a claim, you need to use an accredited calculator. And probably the key thing we achieved was securing 12 and a half million pounds to smarten the greenhouse gas national infantry. And I was delighted that the Republic of Ireland came on board too. And that was done north, south, east, west, looking at how our emissions are and making them more accurate for what happens on our farms. But we did miss an opportunity, and that was we failed to get public recognition that farms can increase their carbon sequestration as well as mitigate their greenhouse gases. And that has haunted me ever since. The one thing we learned through the MAC curve is if you want behavioral change and you want to deliver net zero, the win-wins alone will not deliver net zero. There will be a cost on this journey. And the, and the critical thing is that that cost needs to be recognized. So who will pay? At what price? Well, out there at the moment, there are currently two markets. There is the compliance market otherwise known as the Mission Trading Scheme, normally with the energy sector. But there's the voluntary market out there, the land-based sector. The consequences of those two markets is reflected, and I've given a European equivalence here, is the carbon price in the, client, in the compliance market 
is approximately 65 pounds a ton. In the voluntary market, 15, pounds a ton, 15 euros a ton. For us, this was a big debate. I participated in a DG Klima workshop back in April 21. And one of the highlights for me was uh, a, a, a couple of sentences that were said during that, is the current voluntary carbon price is too low to get farmers to change. Carbon price needs to approach that of the compliance market to get significant farmer behavioral change. That, for me, has really motivated me in how we should go forward. So why the difference? Well, the difference is in the statutory scheme, we have a very strict measuring, reporting, and verification protocol, otherwise known as MRV. In the voluntary market, there are multiple protocols, different standards, and the carbon price is discounted because of that. One would argue, certainly at the Oxford Farming Conference this year, I think there were four new startups on natural capital markets there, and it was like a wild west, all with different standards, all competing, and the one thing is nobody was offering me 65 euro a tonne for my carbon. Most of these voluntary schemes have originated from the States, from mainland Europe, predominantly arable rotations, and certainly not grass. And quite clearly, there are some huge knowledge gaps, particularly in Irish farms, and particularly around how do our carbon stocks change over time in farms. And not only how they change, but how do we measure that change in a way that's credible and that IPCC would sign off on. So how do we fill these knowledge gaps? Well, I was very fortunate that in 2013, a company based in Belfast reached out to me, uh, Owen Brennan and Devnish. They had just purchased a farm of land in County Meath, and they asked me to join their team, their company. And the one thing I've learned in Devnish, and they are extremely good in pig and poultries, if you can't measure, you certainly cannot manage. So how could we do that in ruminant agriculture? And to really, to measure change, you need a starting point, a baseline. And I'm delighted to say in the seven years of journey at Douth, the team, we've built up an extraordinary team, and I'm indebted to what the team have achieved there. But it has also got international recognition. It's one of 12 farms in the global network of lighthouse farms run by Wageningen University and Research in the Netherlands. And it also, too, is part of the Chagas Signpost Farm Network. And I am delighted to see it get that recognition. But key in our journey was creating baselines. Having um, failed in London, I wasn't going to fail a second time round. Now, the beauty about somewhere like Douth is Douth is a stunning place. Not only what it does in livestock and the landscape, it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. We brought archaeologists and agriculturalists together and sparks happened. I learned about technologies I never knew before. LIDAR, what's LIDAR? Used by archeologists to look for archeology span under trees and whatever. Now, as manager at Douth, I needed to find a way to find out where my archeology span was and where it wasn't. At least then we could work out what we we're going to do with the farm. What I wasn't expecting, a month after we did the LIDAR survey in Douth, 
the Environmental Protection Agency of Ireland published a document called Carbon Segregation by Hedgerows in the Irish Landscape using LIDAR. Interestingly, when I read it, the research was done by Chagas, and particularly Stuart Green. I reached for the phone, and sadly, Professor Jerry Boyle was at the other end of the phone, and we said, listen, we'll give you LIDAR data if you give us Stuart Green. And we did. And in partnership, Douth became the first farm in the world to digitally measure every tree and hedge in the landscape. And you can see the results there. And you can see that hedges have more carbon density than trees. Stands the sense. You can walk through a woodland. You can't walk through a hedge. The flip side is you need a lot of kilometers of hedge to make a hectare of woodlands. Once we cracked that, we then said, well, what about a carbon base baseline in our soils? And we had a great PhD student from Newcastle University, Lindsay Graham, who painstakingly went, randomly generated 88 coordinates at Douth, went out and dug 88 soil pits, marked them with GPS, and measured our soil carbon. And the beauty about doing something like this, sometimes you get answers that you don't expect. In our case, what we found is our soil carbon was considerably lower than our peers. We didn't expect that, and it certainly is not what the literature says. And one of the key things with these technologies is if you repeat them every five years, you can measure change. If you can measure change, you get additionality. It has, or hopefully will have, a value. So what we've done is we've taken the learnings from Devonish and from Douth. We secured funding through um, EIP Agri, a partnership between the European Commission and the Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs in Northern Ireland. And we said, could we repeat this on seven different farms in Northern Ireland, different enterprises, so two dairy, uh, uh, beef, sheep, arable, and an oddball called willows, just thrown in, if anyone knows my background. Geographically spread, and really what we wanted to do is could we work out on these seven farms, their gross emissions, their gross segregation, their net carbon position, their soil fertility, but also deliver on multiple wins. Could we look at water quality and could we create runoff risk maps for nutrient, for pesticides, and improve our water quality? To go on this journey, we want credibility, so we secured partners, the Agri-Food and Bioscience Institute, AgriSearch, Devonish, Queen's University Belfast, and SRUC in Scotland. And I'm going to share with you one of, of the seven farms. Hugh Harbison, Hugh will be joining us on the discussion panel about his farm. And he will talk for himself on his views, on the experience of that. 100 hectare farm, family partnership with his father and wife, 180 uh, autumn calving cows, good milk yield based in Ahudui. So one of the key things is we created our baselines. So we measured his above ground carbon and you can see the image here of his farm. You can see where all the trees are. The different colors are the different heights. And from that, we can tabulate what does that mean. So on Hughes' farm, he's 18.78 kilometers for hedges. And you can see the different sizes. He also has 4.62 hectares of woodland. And you can work that across, and you can see he's just short 
of 540 tonnes of carbon. If we repeat this in five years, it will be really interesting to see how much more he has got. But the one thing is, we now have brought transparency to his stocks. You don't need to know the details, a lot of things, but this is his soil carbon. What we've done is we've actually looked at all the different land uses, all the different land managements. We've gone and individualized them, sampled them at 7.5 centimeters, 10 centimeters, and 30 centimeters, and we worked out his total carbon. So he's got 18,594 tons of carbon in his soil. He's got another 538 tons of carbon in his trees and hedges. So in total, he's just over 19,000 tons. And if you turn that into CO2 equivalents, Hugh, on an annual basis, manages just over 70,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalents. How much do you manage? This is something of transparency that most people don't understand what farmers do. Um, so we also looked at his greenhouse gas emissions. This is the summary of Hughes, looking at his gross emissions there, uh, just over 2,000 tonnes. We've benchmarked him against his peers, so he's 2.2% better than his peers. We've worked out his carbon segregation, his woodland segregation, his renewables, and got his net position. And Hugh's net position is 28% below his gross position. And I hope when we repeat this that he will continue to improve. But this brings in both reducing emissions and increasing carbon segregation at the same time. And when you do those both together, you accelerate your journey to net zero. So what I hopefully have shown you is for me the forerunner of what measuring, reporting and validation could look like on a farm. But it's costly. We were very fortunate we secured funding by, from EIP and from DIRA. So the issue is if we want better value in our carbon, we want better MRV, who's going to pay for that MRV? And can we persuade governments to help us on this and deliver an upgraded, consistent and credible measure, reporting and verification? Some of you will be aware, and um, it has already been mentioned in the introduction, that recently Minister Putz launched a world first in Northern Ireland, the Soil Nutrient and Health Scheme with LIDAR. And his plan is to baseline every single field, tree and hedge in the whole of Northern Ireland. This is a world first. And I have to say, for me, when repeated every five years, it is absolutely, for me, the embryonic foundation for a province-wide, credible measure, reporting and verification vehicle. And can I compliment the minister for his vision and the immediate past president of the Ulster Farmers Union, Victor Chestnut, for his leadership in, in, in getting the Ulster Farmers Union to go with this journey. But, there's a big but out there. Governments often forget they need to secure carbon too. Certainly in the UK, if you listen to some of the rhetoric in London, is the private sector, it's up to them. You go and put your house in order. But actually, governments have 
to answer every year against the Greenhouse Gas National Infantry. It's something they signed up to in Kyoto and Paris, and it's quite a complex table. Now, you don't need to read all the table, but it breaks it down. It has multiple silos. And do you know something? Farm businesses sit really uncomfortably in it. If you take many dynamic farms, they're split between four different silos within the infantry, and they have three totally different greenhouse gases, and they don't really talk to each other. And that's not the way I run my business. There is also an opportunity for perverse outcomes if we only focus on the infantry. Because when you look at the infantry, it encourages sectoral or silo targets to be set, which totally ignores the interconnectivity of farm activities on different greenhouse gases and farms' abilities to deliver the cheapest options first. So just an example, if we look at the data coming out of the Republic of Ireland, you know, enteric fermentation is really being focused on. But singling it out and not looking at the total amount of greenhouse gases and looking at segregation on its own really gives farmers a difficulty. Because as a farmer, my journey to net zero, I have to look at the totality. I don't have the luxury at looking at single silo lenses. So carbon credits, double counting, insetting, offsetting, jargon that is used out there all the time. What I want to say about a carbon, a one carbon credit is one ton of carbon dioxide equivalents of an emission saved or additionally created, a carbon additionally created and stored per year. You know, in an ideal world, carbon credits um, would be sold, but they can only be sold or used once. If carbon credit is sold into the private carbon market, it can't also be used to reduce the greenhouse gas natural infantry by the business that sells it. Otherwise, that is double counting, and it undermines the integrity of the journey to net zero. The focus on getting agricultural emissions down needs to be the priority. Uh, so looking at insetting over offsetting, about how we get our own sector's house in order before we go and help everybody else. Otherwise, we have a situation where we will continue to get pressure put on our output. So a possible solution, and this is my discussion document, my discussion question for today, is can we create a hybrid carbon framework to accelerate our journey to net zero through a public-private partnership? We need private carbon, we need public carbon. Can we persuade governments to, to oversee the MRV in a credible way and meet the cost? In return, the government gives you nothing for nothing, in return, the government would claim a mandatory annual reduction requirement from our farm businesses to reduce the greenhouse gas infantry to zero by 2050. Surplus annual carbon improvement over and above that on an annual basis could be then put into the private carbon market without any further cost or any further MRV. The price of the carbon in the, in the private market would not need to be discounted because the MRV is done. It's got integrity. 
And at the end of the day, it will eliminate double counting because you have one vehicle and it will only offer carbon credits to be sold in the private market once the, uh, the mandatory annual reduction is reduced. What would that look on a farm? Well, if I set my farm and I look at, at 2050, if I then say, um, uh, if I look at um, some farms will never reach net zero. Some farms will surpass it. So we need to create a scheme that energizes um, where farmers are going and that we get to net zero. If we start in 2022, 28 years, if we take a farm with 500 tonnes of emissions, we divide it by 28 years, they would have an annual reduction requirement of 18 tonnes a year over those 28 years. So in other words, if I had 500 tonnes less my 18 tonnes, next year I would need 400 to reduce to 482. Reduce it by another 18 tonnes and it staggers and it gives time for the industry to change. But it also incentivizes some farmers, if they want to go further, they can, and there will be a market for their carbon. If a carbon farmer creates extra credits, um, after the first five years, um, that um, carbon position uh, can be used then to sell to other farmers. And so really what you're allowing is a market mechanism. If milk prices stay really high, I want to still produce. But at the same time, you have to understand there will be a carbon cost, and that will allow other farmers who are really good at carbon to actually carry that carbon burden to get the sector to net zero. Clear in this is this prioritizes reducing the uh, national infantry, and it minimizes the risk of indiscriminate mandated production caps or reductions being imposed in our sector. Over the next five years, we still have a lot of knowledge gaps to fill. Key in this is bringing the research community with us. We cannot, as farmers, do it on our own. If I specifically labor on carbon sequestration, because in emissions, most of the knowledge now is to what we call tier two, so of national accuracy, going to tier three, which is very accurate, but carbon sequestration is not. And really what we want to do is once we create this baseline, it's repeated every five years so that we actually get accurate information, fill that knowledge gap, and get our soil carbon segregation to tier three emissions so that we have really good quality MRV so we will get the full price for our carbon and not a discounted price. When we go on this journey alone, there are a lot of other issues, and I haven't got time this evening to share all these issues, and I certainly don't want to put you to sleep. And just to flag some up, and I'm more than happy in the discussion or beyond today to have a further conversation about setting the baseline year, multi-year carbon credits, carbon permanency, farmer flexibility, organic soils. How does the great Irish unique Conacre system, how does that work? How do we deliver other public goods, like water quality, like biodiversity? The image I'm showing is actually of Hughes Farm. This is a runoff risk map. The yellow and red is where, in extreme rainfall, the water runs off his farm. 
The red is where he also has high levels of phosphate in his soil. And now Hugh knows exactly where to put an intervention on his farm to reduce the water runoff, improve water quality, but it all came out of a tool used to measure carbon. So can we deliver those multiple benefits? I want to finish by saying the concept of a carbon framework is not new. And in researching this lecture, I came across a joint press release issued in December 2008. And I'm going to read from it the first quote. Our analysis suggests that there is a significant potential from the agricultural sector that could help the UK achieve its carbon budgets. I recommend that the government focuses on developing a policy framework for reducing emissions from the agricultural sector. In support of that, the second quote, it will be important to develop the future policy framework to, so that the sector can play an appropriate role in helping to deliver against the wider UK target. And when I put the names beside it, the first quote is from Lord Adair Turner, the initial chair of the Climate Change Committee. And the second quote is from myself, as chair of DEFRA's role of Climate Change Forum. And my posing question, 14 years on, what have we achieved? The sentiment is even more urgent and relevant today. How do we do it? The one thing for certain as a practitioner, it has to be practical. It has to be sound. It has to be based on credible science. And certainly we in Northern Ireland cannot do it on our own. This is a huge journey. And I am absolutely delighted today that we're here on a north-south, on an east-west basis that we do it together, and that Alistair's tri tr traveled from Australia to be with us to share some of the experience in the Southern Hemisphere. We need to do this together, credibly. We need to minimize the emotion, and we need to get on and create the right framework. I want to thank all of you tonight and all of those online. It's been a, a, a privilege to be bestowed the honorary role of Professor of Practice. I hope I have certainly started to thought-provoke and uh, hopefully we will have a very good discussion. But I also want to thank our host tonight, Queen's University, the Institute of Global Food Security, and also the Farmer's Journal. Ironically, the Farmer's Journal started my career in 1992 when they appointed me as Tillage Farmer of the Year. I'm delighted that they're here tonight to support me. And the last people I want to think of my family. I've hit a lot of banana skins and brick walls on this journey. They've had to put up with a lot. And not all of it has been comfortable. So I want to give a huge thank you to my family for having patience and bearing with me. And the end of the day, I'm a proud father of four and grandfather of four. What gets me out of my bed in the morning is actually wanting to make this world a better place for my grandchildren. Thank you very much.